Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the 10th episode, I spoke with Jonathan Courtney. Jonathan is a co-founder of AJ and Smart, a design sprint agency based in Berlin, which has worked with really famous companies like Lufthansa, Slack, Google, Lyft, Bose, and so on. He's also a host of a really nice podcast, which I highly recommend, The Product Breakfast Club, where he and Jay Knapp, the author of Design Sprint, talk about the product and UX design. In one of the podcasts, Jonathan explained why he thinks the golden age of UX is over and what designers have to learn to stay relevant and get ahead in their careers. Obviously, the answer has something to do with business, so we talked about the specific skills that Jonathan thinks the designers need to develop in order to improve and to be decommoditized. We also talked uh, about Jonathan's mindset or tendency to do panic learning, what does it mean and what it resulted in. And we touched upon the last project of the AJN Smart, which is an online course on design sprints and how they used the design sprint to actually create this online course and generate more than 60,000 euros in pre-orders. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So, to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Jonathan. So, Jonathan, I love to start with podcasts with a little bit of the background of the guests. So, what I'm wondering is, how did you even end up in the design discipline or design industry? Um... Well, when I was, I, I guess I was, when I was growing up, I was interested in doing a lot of different things. I wanted to be an illustrator. I wanted to be an animator. Um, I wanted to be a comic book artist. Um, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a musician. I had all of these, I guess, like the, almost like the creative, kind of broad creative range. I, I didn't really exactly know um, what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew it was somewhere in that sort of range of like doing stuff that no one will ever pay you for. Um, at least back then when I was doing it in Ireland, um, it was this, it was the kind of stuff that you'd never get paid for. Um, and while I was, you know, um, in high school, I was always designing like the album covers for my own band and for the other bands in the school. I was always, I was designing like the, posters that you know my, my parents were doing music shows as well I was designing those posters I was designing like the school magazine um, and I, I always felt like that was kind of uh, fun it was a good, really good hobby but I never thought I would you know end up doing that for money um, and I, then I ended up uh, studying digital media production it was a, a course I, I could have gone either way it was a course that had like photography filmmaking illustration animation programming everything in it um, and while, again, while I was doing this course, I was making some money on the side doing some, you know, designing like 
wedding websites and, and all of this kind of crap. Um, but it was never really like something where I was like, yeah, I'm, that's my thing. Like I'm good at that. And um, I finished college. Um, I was super into the idea at that point of being a filmmaker. Um, so that was the only thing I wanted to do. Um, so while I pursued my filmmaking career, I was looking for a part-time job in, in kind of either working in a bar or doing design work. I ended up getting a job doing um, as, as like the pretty much the only designer in the startup in Berlin. Uh, I'd never designed an app in my entire life. I'd never used, um, I'd never really, yeah, I'd never really done anything like that. But I ended up, um, yeah, I ended up being like the lead designer at a company that was uh, just starting to explore Android. And and this was back in 2008. So there wasn't really, you know, all there, you know, sketch didn't exist. There wasn't no templates online for doing this kind of stuff. So I was making it all up. I didn't even have an Android phone. I had just gotten like a secondhand old ass iPhone from somebody. Um, so it was like one year after the iPhone came out. So no one even had, had that. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of how I, I accidentally got into it. I accidentally started enjoying it. Um, I started reading about, um, user experience design in, in college. I had learned a little bit of design psychology, but to be honest, I didn't learn shit in college. It was all just like panic learning It was like, you've been hired as the lead designer in this company, panicking, just like pure <laughs> panic learning. Um, fuck, the date is totally wrong. I said 2008, right? Um, yeah. It was 2010. Sorry, it was 2010. So okay. some people did have iPhones, but um, you know, it still wasn't like you know the, the app revolution and everybody using apps all day just wasn't really there. Um, okay. So yeah, like I had, a, I did actually have, I'm just remembering now, I did have an iPhone, but it was so insanely slow and it didn't even have like, you know, always uh, connected internet because the companies didn't even have these like proper tariffs for doing that um, at that point. But yeah, I was, I was trying to figure that all out myself. I was like, just like Googling everything, buying every book I possibly could, um, even going to like uh, conferences, trying to learn everything. And I think, I think it was like six months into it where I was like, fuck, you know what? I actually there are other people who are calling themselves like um, UI designers or, or I think it was like web designers and stuff. But I have the feeling that they're not as like, they're not as like panicky with learning this stuff. And, and that's kind of um, the moment where I realized I might actually end up being good at it because I'm going to be able to out nerd them. Um, yeah. And that was kind mm. of the moment where I was like 2011, probably about, May 2011, um, I was up every night just learning everything I could. And I was like, fuck, you know what? I'm going to be a designer now. <laughs> and that was, the, that was also the point where I was like, oh, I think the thing that I'm good at is like helping, the, helping them like figure out what the actual interface should be and, and, you know, helping them build the wireframes and helping them figure out what the features should be. And the term UX designer was floating around there as well. Um, so I just took that, stuck it on my, my uh, CV, and then I was a UX designer from then on. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about this panic learning. I, this sounds really <laughs> interesting. Um, is this something that you've always done? And then how oh, do yeah. you approach it? Always. I, I never prepare for anything. Um, like you heard before this podcast, I didn't want you to tell me the questions. I can't prepare yeah. for anything. I don't enjoy pre preparation. It's, it's something I'm really, really terrible at. Um, I prefer to sell myself as, you know, like I'm going to be able to do this. I, I like, I, I guess I have like this weird confidence that I'm able to do everything. 
Um, and so I, I told this company, yeah, I'll be the lead designer. I'll, I, I'm able to take care of the design team. I can design all these Android apps. No problem. Um, and I like doing that because it adds like crazy pressure, the kind of pressure I need to learn. So I was never a person who could sit down and study in, in college or in school. I just never found that interesting. But like two days before, then I would go into panic mode and I would force myself to learn a lot and I would do relatively okay. So for me, um, even running AJ and Smart, the, the business that I'm running, I have to panic learn all the time because I don't, I mean, I have this is now a 2 million euro business. I have no idea how to do that. So I have to panic learn my way into learning business now. And I have to, it's just something that for me, it's like the pressure has to be on to learn or else I'm not going to learn anything. And I just don't learn unless there's pressure. So what it actually looks like is I'll take a project or I'll say I'm going to be able to do something. Um, <laughs> or like, for example, I'll announce to people that I'm going to do a podcast or something like that. And then I'll even choose a date where that thing is going to start. And then I'll just like somehow figure out how the hell that's going to work. Whereas a lot of people, um, they kind of stall until they think <laughs> they're ready. Um, but I always pass those people out pretty quickly because while they're stalling, I mean, they never actually get around to doing anything anyway. So you you learn the most while you're doing and, and while you're fucking up. So like for me learning and like, you know, doing the prep and all that kind of stuff, gets you maybe 30% of the way there. But then doing the thing and fucking up and seeing what it's really like, that gets you then to the 100%. So I think a lot of people who spend their entire time preparing, reading, uh, you know, contemplating about what they're going to do, um, they only ever get to the 30% and then they're kind of afraid to start. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just something that's kind of a little bit built into me, the panic learning thing. Was you starting a company in 2011 also kind of the part of this panic learning uh, mindset that you have? 100%. I didn't want to, I had no intention of starting a company at all. Um, AJ and Smart started because uh, I met a guy in this company where I was designing the Android apps. He was a freelance designer there. Um, he's also has a similar personality to me. He's just like, yeah, I can do that. And then just tries to figure out how the fuck to do it. Um, he said to me, oh, hey, um, I'm freelancing for this college in Berlin called the ESMT. Actually, it's a business school. You might even know it. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's called the European School of Business or Management and Technology. Um, and they have like this deal with the German government. They, they want to make this like crazy web app. And it's like it has to be done in four weeks. And um, it's totally crazy. And they're looking for an agency to do it. And he was like, but I think we could do it. Um, and I was like, you mean like me and you? Okay. Um, so we went and we pitched for it. I, I called a friend of mine, actually the bass player in my band at the time. And he was learning to code. So um, I was like, hey, dude, do you want to like pitch, pretend to be an agency and pitch for this job? Um, I, I don't even know why we did it. I honestly don't even know why we did it. I think it was just for fun to see what would happen. Um, went and pitched for it. Uh, we got it also because um, all the other agencies were more expensive. And all the, all the other agencies were saying it was, it was too stupid and too short. Um, like it was too short uh, timeline to do it. And today I would say the same thing because today I actually know how long stuff takes. But back then I didn't. So back then we were like, yeah, no problem. We can do it. Um, we were like, we can do it for 8K. And they were like, no, but the budget is 30K. <laughs> and they were like, oh, and then I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do it for 30K. 
Um, <laughs> so they actually had to get rid of even specifically a budget uh, to, to get this thing out. And um, yeah, so they basically said yes. Um, I still had a job. I had to actually go and quit it. Um, like the next day, I was like, "Oh fuck! Um, can I swap to freelance?" And ah, oh, shit! I should. It was. It was a really messy. Really, it was. Just, I mean, that's kind of unfortunately the the negative part of it is that I then you know didn't really warn that company that I'm going to be doing something like this. I just kind of disappeared, but still kind of finished up my work. Um, and then that month was completely insane. Um, never, never had anything like it. Working from 9am to like 5am, often sleeping in, we were, we were working actually in the ESMT building, often even sleeping in there. Um, really crazy for 30 days, but we got it done. Um, and we had, we had to even learn like, uh, like, you know, CSS and, and stuff like that, because we had no idea what we were doing. At one point, we even had to find like some guy who knew how to like build the back end because there was actually like crazy data being fed into it. At yeah, we we myself and my co-founder, we didn't even know in some cases like how to export specific elements to like assets. This was the time when you actually needed to export images and put them online to make an interface. So there was like mm. crazy stuff going back uh, going on at that time. There was even that that was even the time when. Um, I think Apple released maybe their first Retina laptop. And I, I remember like trying to figure out how the hell to do like the 2X uh, assets. And we we're like, oh God. <laughs> but yeah, that was a crazy learning month. Um, and also in that month, because we pretended we were an agency, um, when we sent them three freelancer bills, they were like, no, you can't do that. You're an agency. We need one bill. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, yeah, no problem. So again, panic learning. How the hell do you start a company? Um, mm. how does that even work? And we, we started the company in the space of like two days. We named it on the spot. Um, AJ and Smart was born. And the idea was that we would just close it after the month once we got paid. But um, oh. yeah, ended up, ended up working out actually. Cool. So this was in the time of the golden <clears throat> age of UX, right? For, yeah, so, well, well, what I call that, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I wanted to segue into this topic. So you wrote this really fascinating article called The Golden Age of UX is Over. Uh, very clickbaity title, but oh, it's yeah, worth it. <laughs> yeah. So maybe let's just just tell us, like, what is the golden age of UX and why is it over? Okay. So for me, the golden age of UX, now this is something that you might have a different opinion on um yeah for example um if you're in silicon valley uh the term ux was there much 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 earlier than it was um in europe but there was still um like almost like this general uh period of time from when the iphone launched i think around like 2007 um to about like five six uh years after that where the entire like digital product design industry um, just went into overdrive, where people were trying to figure out how to make you know multiple uh, designs from multiple screen sizes. People were trying to responsive design came in came on the scene, and there was just this crazy huge demand for what was called the UX designer, the person who actually understands this shit, someone who can come in and help us make our mobile responsive website or our apps or, or all of this thing. And there was really, um, back then when we started AJ and Smart in, in September 2011, there was just nobody. There was like, even for us to hire people was a complete nightmare. We couldn't find anybody. But what that also meant was that the demand was extremely high um, and mm -hmm. the supply was extremely low. So 
as a UX designer, you were kind of like the, the, the master of the product team. You could just walk into the room and just be like, look, here's what's mm-hmm. up. The user won't <laughs> like this. We need to change everything. And even if the business owner or the product owner was like, yeah, but you know what? We need to make money with this product and, and that we need the conversion rate to be high. Um, as a UX designer, you could still just be like, yeah, but the user won't like it. And, and it's all about the, the UX and, and you know the user, the user. And you could get away with a lot. Um, and I think a lot of people um, starting at that point started like coasting their way through the next few years, making a lot of money. Um, um, and now, I mean, the, what, what I mean by the golden age of UX is over I don't mean that it's a negative thing. Um, I think what's after happening now is that the demand and supply have kind of evened out. There's enough UX designers on the scene who can do the basic work of, you know, making sure that you make a, a usable product and it has like the right features, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what is actually needed now, if you want to stay competitive, if you want to actually, you know, have a higher salary, um, and and I, I think that's some. A lot of people got angry about this article that I wrote, but um, they're just kind of in denial. If you uh, if you want a higher salary, then you need to actually now add a few more skills onto that UX baseline, um, mm-hmm. and those skills revolve around actually understanding the business of the product, the, the product you're working on. So, if you're a UX designer who's just focused on the customer and just focused on the user you're kind of fucked. I mean, in terms of like just salary, you're going to hit your cap pretty quickly and you're going to stay there and maybe you'll stay in the company long and, and whatever, I don't really know. But the person who has the UX baseline and understands product strategy um, is able to speak with the marketing team, understands what they do um, and is is just really able to also understand growth metrics. You know, the, the like what are the growth mm-hmm. metrics? What are we... What what are the things we're actually measuring with this product? What are KPIs? What are OKRs? What are these things that the business owners and the product managers are actually talking about? If you're able to come in and have that on top of your baseline, then you're going to start working your way up and then you're once again in uh, in, in demand. Um, but if you're just coasting along, um, focusing on UX and UI design, Unless you're the best of the best, you're you're going to be hitting your salary cap pretty soon, um, and you're going to be kind of relegated to being a production level uh, employee, which is fine. Which means maybe you'll just kind of sit there for the next ten years, and and no one will you know say anything. But um, yeah, you're not necessarily going to be. Uh, you'll be looking at these new people who are maybe calling themselves product strategists or. UX strategists, um, they'll be making double your mm-hmm. salary and maybe you're going to be pissed off. So in the article, you outline kind of the three uh, skills, the business skills that are important for UX designers to master. Can we go through these three quickly, kind of explain yeah. what they are? And then maybe um, the second part of the question would be, you know, which one do you think is, if you would just have to start with one, which one oh. would you start with? Okay. Um, yeah, the three are, I, I mentioned them there, but I'll kind of put them in order now. Product strategy, yeah. um, which is a little, I mean, the simple way I can put that is like understanding, uh, on the one hand, understanding how the product you're working on fits into the business you're working for. You know, what's the reason that this product is even being built? How does it fit in with other products? Sometimes products are just being built um, to collect data for another product that's way more important. Like oftentimes designers don't even know 
why the fuck are we doing this thing, right? And they often don't care. They're just focusing on the user, whereas the business owner might not care at all about the user because this thing is being built for a completely other reason. Um, so really understanding what is the strategy behind the product that you're building and also understanding it to a level that you're able to contribute to strategic conversations. And I think this is extremely important. When I'm in the room with designers um, and when I'm in the room then with the product full product team, um, oftentimes I'm the only one who can contribute to uh, when, when the people from the business side of it are in there from the strategy side. Often I'm the only one who can actually contribute and say, hey, look, maybe the way we should roll this out is this, this, and this, and this, because then this, this, and this, and this, and this could happen later. And this is something that's th- being able to think strategically and being able to look at the bigger picture of how the product fits into the business rather than thinking about what's the best experience for the user, which is kind of the baseline which you have to work mm-hmm. with anyway. Um, there's a really great article you can Google called What the Fuck is Product Strategy? Um, WTF, actually, it's just called WTF is Strategy by Vince Law. Really great article. Check that out if you want to understand product strategy. Um, the second thing um, for me, it's it's understanding growth, just growth as a topic overall. Every single product, um, and I, I learned this way too late, um, every single product you're working on, there is, whether it's coming from the CEO or whether it's coming from the, the business team, um, there's going to be there, this, this kind of need for growth in this product. There's going to be a metric that's important for that team revolving around growth. So whether that's increasing acquisition, increasing engagement, um, increasing retention, um, re-engaging users, whatever it is, they're going to be tracking these things and they're going to be trying to grow these things constantly because digital products, and especially if there's investors involved, growth is the only shit they care about. They don't necessarily always care about revenue. They don't necessarily always care about um, profit margins, although those things are being measured on a, a, a gr- with uh, growth as well. But there are these metrics that also revolve around the users as well. So, for example, Facebook, it's the daily active users, right? We, they don't want that to be reducing, which it is reducing right now, actually, which is very negative yeah. for them. Um, so this understanding of the topic of growth already puts you at an advantage because most UX designers don't give a shit about it. Um, and the, the book Hacking Growth, you just need to read like the first half of that and you'll understand it. Yeah, and, it's and really I, good. Yeah, it's really great. And, and something I should say that's important in all of this, it's not that you necessarily have to understand the, pro- the, the, the topic inside and out. That will take a long time. But you need to understand the vocabulary that these people mm-hmm. in the product team are using, right? If they come into the room and they say, look... Um, we really need to think about the retention growth here. It's, it's something we're having a really big problem with. And if you don't fucking, if you're not able to answer that question or you're not able to contribute and use the vocabulary um, around how growth projects work, um, yeah, then you're, then you're just not going to be seen as an important partner on that project. Um, and the third, the third thing is, is kind of the thing that designers often hate and it's understanding marketing understanding how the product you're working on is going to be marketed and understanding how you as a designer can work with a marketing team. Um, This is something where designers fail a lot because they hate marketing often and they hate how the product they're working on is sold and they think people for marketing are stupid. Um, Mm -hmm. But product marketing is, is often the only way anyone ever hears about the product in the first place. So really understanding that having the vocabulary once again 
um, understanding how to speak to marketeers um, also will help you get your own way and will help you you not seem ignorant. So um, there's a actually you know what if you just read my article the golden age of UX is over. There's yeah. links there's links in there <laughs> to all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think did I answer the question? There was yes. another. So there was a second part. I can't the remember. Second part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always the problem with the long questions. Look, so the second part was if you would have to start with just one of these, right? Which one would you start with? So in other words, which one do you think like is something that can kick up things and maybe is the most important one or the easiest to master or whatever? Mm, I would like to say strategy, but I think it's actually growth. I think understanding mm-hmm. growth is probably the most important thing you need to understand um, when you're working on a product because it is what means the product is going to live or die. And it is the most important thing for the people you're working with. Um, and I'm, I'm always blown away how few people understand the concepts around growth. Of course, they think, oh, yeah, it's just like stuff gets more. No, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of vocabulary around growth and how growth projects are happening and just really understanding it. And, and then when, once you understand growth, you'll understand a little bit more clearly why the product manager comes to you with a specific project that sounds stupid to you. Because, yeah, I, th- I think that the um, UX designers often, you know, turn into divas when they get these projects. They're like, ah, what the hell is this? It doesn't make any sense. The user won't like it. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you can get your way, but maybe it's better to get your way by using their vocabulary and say, hey, look, we know, I, I understand you want to dramatically increase the retention and understand that this is how you think we should do it. But I think that we should try a growth experiment that looks a little bit more like this. If you as a designer is able to speak like that, you're immediately more valuable. I think that designers who have a real deep understanding of the whole growth process um, and also around the whole growth hacking uh, thing, which sometimes makes people kind of go, oh, growth hacking, whatever. Um, I just, I just think that that's like, I have, I have like one person within AJ and smart who deeply understands this topic. Um, and she has automatically become, actually you, you're speaking, you you spoke to her, Laura, uh, she, she, mm. I think set up this call. Um, but yeah. she's like, she has a deep understanding of it and this deep understanding of it makes it super easy for her to understand the kinds of requests that I have and understands, she basically can understand, she understands how to relay the results back to me in a way that really work with me if you know what i mean so basically it means that yeah. um, her understanding of growth means she can um she could she can manipulate me into into you know making decisions where i thought maybe i would want to do something else um by using the terminology that she knows that i'm thinking about even if i'm even if it's like subconsciously thinking about it got it makes sense because she talks about the metrics uh, or the goals that you care about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So is there maybe like a case study or a story that you can share of a project where you wanted to move the needle on the growth dashboard? And then, um, you know, what is the role of designer actually? Is it just like we discussed understanding these things? Or to what extent do, does designer then need to also actually create those experiments? There's no project that I've worked on that doesn't have uh, a growth a- angle to it. Every, every single project, even even if I'm looking at organizational change projects that I work on, there's some sort of growth metric involved. Um, a recent, no, maybe last year, we worked with Udacity on a project, which 
on the surface, maybe it doesn't look like a growth project, but it is a growth project. And, and the idea was we wanted to make sure more people got to the end of the courses because Udacity cares about people finishing the courses because mm-hmm. they really want people to learn. They really want people to get to the end and get jobs. And of course, as a normal designer, you might just look at that and be like, okay, we need to make the user experience nicer and blah, 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 blah. But the way I saw it is, ah, okay, so what we want to do is we want to dramatically increase the retention. Like that's that's basically the way I looked at it. So this is a mm-hmm. retention growth project. And my job as a designer here is to create retention growth experiments to design retention growth experiments that are then going to be tested um, tested on the market and we see what actually works. And whichever retention growth experiments actually sort of seem to have the biggest effect, then we're going to double down on those and pour more cash into those specific things. So that's an example where a normal designer would have said to the, you know, would have said to this, in that case, the VP of product, oh yeah, okay, so I think uh, maybe this, you know, the, this page looks a bit like a bit messy and, and maybe we can dramatically increase the usability here and here and here. And, and maybe the product owner would have been, or the, the VP of product might have been like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, and then maybe later would have been dissatisfied or, or maybe still see that person like as a bit of a, um, as a bit of a production person. Whereas myself and, and the people at AJ and Smart can come in at immediately as a partner and say, oh, okay, so the retention is a problem here. And you just see their yeah. eyes light up. You just see them like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I didn't know you yeah, actually yeah. fucking educate yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's like a, I think that's something where it does irritate me a little bit that um, UX designers can be such divas about these things and um, just like be quite ignorant about them. When they hear things like conversion rate optimization, their eyes glaze over. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it's fine. It's fine if you just want to focus on design. And I understand you can be honestly. We have people at AJ and Smart who are just so fucking good at design. They don't need to do anything else ever again because they're like geniuses. They're like artists. Mm-hmm. But those are really, really hard to find. So unless you're an actual artist, which I'm not, by the way. So for example, me. I wouldn't be good enough. I'm, I'm a good UX designer, but I wouldn't be good enough to get like a constantly growing salary. So I did need to add these things on to become someone who's more valuable on the market. So I just want to like make that clear. If you're the best fucking designer of all time, and I have, I have another friend, um, his name is Eric. <laughs> He's like one of the best designers I've ever met in my entire life. He doesn't need to do shit anymore, right? He's just so He's so good. It just doesn't matter even though he actually does kind of educate himself on these things, but he doesn't need to. Whereas most people who are, let's say an eight out of 10, you need to, you need to just think about the fact that you may not be value as valuable as you think in, in these companies, if you don't understand these things. You bring up a really interesting point. Um, so I think there are like two ways how you can really become indispensable in a company, which is one you have, one specific skill where you really, really excel at. Yeah. You would be like a top 1% in that. But sometimes even easier way is to have a really interesting combination of skills. Yeah. Right. You might not be the best UXer. You might not be the best business designer. But if you combine the two, you can become a really good UX strategist. Totally. Yeah. I think it's also, it's also yeah. like a lot of people, um, it just depends, right? Some people are like career 
freaks like me where I just want to keep optimizing and I, I want to be like the most valuable person. But there are also a lot of people mm -hmm. who just don't really care that much or, or will make a lot of excuses. Like, um, you know, someone, there are going to be people listening to this podcast who are going to be like, yeah, but you know what? I actually don't really have time to, to read that stuff mm -hmm. because I have kids and, and because like I actually have football practice afterwards. Um, and, and to those people, I, I'm, I'm just like, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't want it. You don't want to do that, right? It's not that you don't have time. Um, you definitely have time to do these things. You, I have a, I'm running a business. I'm, I have plenty of things going on, but I still find the time to sometimes, even if it's once a month, um, you know, catch up on these things and educate myself. But I think it's just there are the majority of people don't care about this stuff. Like it's, it's not that everyone listening to this podcast is now going to go out and read hacking growth. Um, maybe three mm -hmm. people will, <laughs> and that's also good news for the supply and demand laziness. Exactly. Laziness yeah. wins. So, uh, laziness and excuses always win. So it's good for people. It's good for people who actually want to put the effort in because you kind of end up, you know, going up the salary food chain pretty quickly. If you just do anything. Exactly. Mm, totally agree. So, so Jonathan, on one side, now we spoke about designers becoming more business-minded. But how do you, when you design products, make sure that you do good for the business and for the user? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think that like the, <laughs> the, like the way that we work is that we build um, a full day of user testing every single week for a product that we're working on. It's actually even like a lot more than uh, uh, people usually do user tests. So even if the product didn't exist on Monday, even if nothing existed on Monday, we already have people testing a very high fidelity prototype of it on Thursday. Um, even though we are mostly focused on the business goals, um, what we're trying to think. I just don't believe that, um, like my personal belief is that you're trying to, you're not necessarily, you're, you're trying to make something of value. You're trying to make something that people find valuable. And even if the interface is a total piece of shit and it looks ugly, look at, look at Zencaster. Look at this thing we're using to record the podcast. This has been the yeah, same yeah. for the last two years. It looks exactly the same as it did two years ago. It doesn't matter. It's fine. It does exactly what it needs to do. It's basic. Uh, it, sometimes it's buggy, whatever. It just works, right? And I think sometimes exactly. there's too much emphasis put on the user when the user will dig through bullshit for life just to get something out of what they need. Um, and I think also, to be honest, like I want whatever we create at AJ and Smart to be like beautiful, a beautiful user experience because also that's you know why the companies often come to us in the first place, not realizing that we can also help with the business stuff. Um, and I think that's like something where the, even the most basic seven out of 10 designer today knows how to do that. They know like you can take pretty much take Google's material design <laughs> template and it will be relatively usable if you just don't add too much new stuff in there. Um, so mm -hmm. we, we try to focus on like, we basically, we take what the client says to us and they say, look, this is what we, what we want to create because people need this. And then we just take it at face value People need that thing, even though sometimes we're like, yeah, people definitely don't need that thing. And then when we test it, we see for real, do, will people really spend money on that? Will people really use that thing? Um, and so our first step is always just to validate whether this thing even needs to exist, even if it's just a feature. 
And the second step is, okay, you know what? People want that. People, people might actually want this thing. Um, let's now actually make this a beautiful, usable experience. We recently worked on a product um, called Oak. It's a meditation app. Um, the, oh, yeah. It's, yeah it's, I'm actually a user of it. Not cool. So you're probably using yeah. the version that is like it, it's dark and has like these vector graphics in it, I guess. Dark blue, yeah, with the oak in the yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So we're we we have designed a completely new version of it. Everything is new. Everything's from scratch. Um, and this is a product where we once we got to the point where we're like, yeah, that's that's actually what needs to happen for the for like the user. Like that's actually what they they would like to have. Um, then we just went all in on the design and made it beautiful, made it usable. And then like lots and lots of user testing and lots and lots of usability testing. But the most important part for us was in the beginning, um, are these the kinds of features that make sense for the business? Are these the kind of features that we think, you know, we should actually even put effort into. And then once the user test results kind of, um, you know, you know, give us a positive thumbs up, then we go all in on the UX stuff. So we, I think we we say business mm, first and then the user. I know that's not the design thinking way of thinking about it, but I also don't care. Yeah, but a, a few guests on the show have actually said that they try to get the design briefs from the business side. You know, so yeah. basically the briefs are from some business challenge and then they look at the user. Yeah. Yeah, the user thing is super it's super like um I think you know you're talking to a kind of an amateur designer when they only care about the user and that's yeah. the only thing they're talking about. Um, and they're like super focused on the personas, even though you as a person who's worked on, I've, I've worked on products for six years. I think at least 30 products that I've worked on are like successful on the market, making the companies millions. And what I understand is that it doesn't matter what fucking personas you have. It doesn't matter what you think the user wants or what they tell you in a test. Everything, everything really is a simulation until it's on the market and the market's going to tell you if it works or not. Whether it's beautiful or not, it doesn't matter, but the market is going to tell you whether people engage with it, whether people pay for it. It just doesn't matter till it's out. And that, that's my opinion. That's why I don't like to spend so much time on something until it's out there. And then, then you can make it as beautiful mm -hmm. as you want, but I just I don't believe in the you know, focus on the user and you'll get everything you need. I, I just don't believe that at all. And I think that agencies that push that kind of mindset, I don't think they believe it either. <laughs> Tell me one thing. How do you, when you have a new client or a new project, how do you learn about their business? We, I mean, we, we do it pretty like fast. We, we generally don't. Um, so we do a little bit of prep. So we work in design sprints. That's probably some context. We, every single project we do starts with a design sprint. And the design sprint, essentially, the first two days of the design sprint is just us and the client sitting in the room, 16 hours over two days, really intensely getting all the information out of them possible. So that's the main way we learn about their business. That's the, that's the main thing. Um, we do a little bit of prep as well, but very, very little. Um, even on the most complex, you know, you know, helping a company with their digital press strategy for their car or something. Um, even then, we're only doing like three or four hours of prep the week before. But almost everything happens then in person in a two-day super intensive workshop. And that's, that's where most of it happens. And I think um, at this point, 
now six years into AJ and Smart, like we've worked on hundreds of products, you just start to see the patterns. I think that's that's also it. At a certain point, you just don't need to. You're like, oh, it's a B2B medical, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, we, we know what that is like. Or it's an, you know, it's mm-hmm. a it's a big bank that only works with SMBs. Okay, we, we know how to do that. Like it's you just get get used to it. You get um you you start to see the patterns, you you start to not need the details. You you know you go and you work with a um, an advertising platform and you're like, okay, I know all of the terminology that they're going to be talking about. I don't need to ask them when they say SMB, I don't need to say, oh, what are you, what are you talking about there? Or like when they have their, like when you're working with a video streaming service and they say SVOD and TVOD, you don't need to know, you don't need to say, what is that? You get it. And when you're working with a football company and they have their terminology, I get it. I get it. I get it. I think at this point we just do very, very little. Um, we do very, very little prep learning about their business. We learn it all in person with them. So you mentioned that you work in design sprints, um, yeah. which reminds me of another topic I wanted to touch upon, which is you recently launched an online course about design sprints, right? And uh, I've heard in your podcast that it's been super, super successful, even with the pre-launch, and that you actually use the design sprint to create the online course for design sprints, which makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Could you, could you just basically tell a story of how this idea came to be? Yeah. So, yeah, we, we decided um, seven weeks ago that we wanted, we were ready to put to get put together an online course for the design sprint since we are working with the guy who wrote the sprint book and we are kind of like one of the leading training companies for it and we want to have a digital online version because our clients are also asking for a reference um, so that they can uh, kind of use when they're out of our office and the goal was not to like the in, in the sprint we knew we could make a good product we knew we could make a good training course but we didn't know how to sell things online Mm-hmm. ourselves we know how to do it for our clients but we've never done it for ourselves so in the first week of the sprint the only goal was can we get people to actually spend their money on this even before it ever exists um, and in the first week we just focused on building a sales funnel that was the entire product was the sales funnel we built like a trailer we built some fake we did, shot some fake videos we built a landing page we put up some ads um, and in the first week we made sixteen thousand euro just with this test. And so okay. we were like, oh, wow, shit, this shit works. And so we ran the test. We iterated over the next three weeks. We got up to 60,000 60, euro. Wow. Um, and pretty much yesterday we launched it officially. Um, uh, we kind of started the sales funnels and um, the actual course exists now. Um, and yeah, that was completely using our own processes that we use with our clients. And uh like just if, honestly, not thinking about the user at all, zero personas, zero thinking about who we're designing this for, just thinking, we think this is good and we're going to test out the sales funnel. So yeah, that was our validation. It was really, really fun. So Jonathan, last question, just for everyone who wants to get in touch with you or learn more about your podcast or the course, where online can they find you? You can find me at J-I-C-E-Cream, J-I-C-E Cream. Ice cream on Instagram or on Twitter, um, and you can. I'm I'm also running the Product Breakfast Club podcast every Monday uh, with Jake Knapp, the guy who wrote Sprint. And I think, um, yeah, if you have any questions, obviously just contact me directly, and I'm always always happy to answer. More happy to answer on Instagram because I can just do a video answer very quickly, and I don't have to type. 
So yeah, Alan, thanks so much, dude. It was really, really cool. And I, I love the questions. Thank you. Really, thanks for taking the time and good luck with all the projects. Cool, that's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. Um, this really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design, to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com. Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.